Hello, I'm Ernie Manus, and welcome to Next Question. Having just come off a day when most folks have to communicate with each other, we thought it might be interesting to sit down with Temple Northrop, director of the Valenti School at the University of Houston, about his podcast, All About Communicating. It's called Press Play, and we'll hear more about that in just a little bit. Also, with World AIDS Day being recognized on December 1st, we share with you an interview I did with performer and AIDS activist Cheryl Lee Ralph, star of the original Broadway production of Dreamgirls. Plus, believe it or not, Dustin Chase and I don't necessarily agree on the new Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman. Hear why a little later. We'll also give you a list of films that we're thankful for this weekend. And Tro Schultz joins us at the end of the show to share some music from the series Skyline Sessions. But first, it's been a crazy few weeks of political upheaval, both locally with elections and runoff elections, and nationally with Congress, the White House, and impeachment hearings. So to help us make a little more sense of it all in our weekly roundtable, please join me in welcoming the hosts of Party Politics, Brandon Roddinghouse and Geronimo Cortina. Okay, we have been worn out this year in politics. We've got one more month to go till the end of the year. We've come off hearings. We've got a presidential race in high gear. We've got new people popping up, it seems, all the time that want this job. What should we be paying attention to? Where are we at? Well, we joked on the podcast this week that that effectively that this is like a rocks in your pocket kind of a week. Like if you didn't have rocks in your pocket, you were going to blow away like the West Texans say. (laughs) So it has been a lot going on all at once. Impeachment and debates and just the chaos of the churn of Washington. So there's a lot going on. Um, I think we need to think about, you know, some of the big things that are happening, especially impeachment. That's going to come to a head here pretty soon, uh, assuming the Democrats can kind of get their ducks in a row. The debates are going to continue. One question is who's going to qualify for the next round of debates, right? With an ever-growing number (laughs) of people who are uh, uh, (laughs) coming out of the far past year to run for president. So it's going to be a busy week. Well, absolutely. And then, you know, even though Congress is right now on on vacation for uh, uh, for the, the holiday, for the holiday recess, they call the, it. Oh, not, not, I'm sorry. Well, recess, which <laughs> is like out in the yard elementary playing. school, right? Playing in the yard in the, yeah, right. They're the jungle gym and that kind of Fits stuff. them perfectly this uh, time around. Uh, their behavior, playing of child games, yes. uh, right? Um, it's a lot of things are going uh, uh, still going on, right? Uh, this week we're going to have a ruling by federal judges saying if. Uh, you know, former uh, chief of, uh, well, former uh, White House staff should or should not go yeah. into uh, these, uh, you know, all these inquiries and that not. Let me just, let me start right there with right. digging a little deeper. You can go before Congress and not answer questions right. and say this is, so if you have that right to do that and we have equal branches of government, if you are called in, It just seems logical, not that it needs to go to the Supreme Court to settle this. You should have to appear because you don't have to incriminate yourself. You can say as simple as I don't recall even. So then how does this become such a big issue? What am I missing? Well, I think, well, first of all, it's a balance of power issues, right? If you're a co-equal branch and the duty of uh, the legislative branch is to, you know, uh, see into what the executive branch is doing monitor or whatnot, right, is that's a fair question. So if you're not going because you're not uh, uh, basically uh, following uh, Congress's orders, then, you know, that's a violation of, you know, the balance of power on the one hand. Then on the other hand, the interesting question, and this question would be for a constitutionalist, right, is 
I get that you have the right to claim the fifth, but that's in criminal cases. Right. This is not but a criminal right. procedure. You right? have a right to not answer, don't you? Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, but I'm not sure if you have the right to take the plea, uh, the, the, okay. the, the, to take the fifth as you would do in a criminal case. Because you it, can call, though, on executive privilege. And you can say, you I'm can sorry, do that. this is right. privileged information. I can't answer that Absolutely. question. Absolutely. But, but the question here is, we have to be mindful that this is a, a political issue. It's not a criminal case mm -hmm. so far, right? Because the Constitution doesn't have, you know, right. uh, Article D's or Penal Code D's or that, or et cetera, et cetera. It's just a political issue. So can you do that in a political case? I don't know. That's, you know, one of the most interesting questions that, you know, some dude at a law school uh, <laughs> would have to write a uh, hundred page book right. uh, and, and see if, if that's the case And or then not. you would just read the summary because right. that's the only part that makes well, sense. Because that's right. what we need, one more book to come out <laughs> during this presidency. Right. Um, let me ask this question then, to step even further back. I paid attention to the hearings. I was kind of fascinated by them. But I, so you're the one, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> I have a job though, so occasionally I didn't want. Right. How was it, was it connecting with an audience? Were people watching and did people care? What have we heard? You know, I think the Democrats have done the best they can to keep the coals hot on impeachment. It's been a d difficult thing to do because obviously there's so much going on and there's such a swirl around every issue that it's hard to get the real kind of truth. But they did a good job kind of keeping it on the front page in a metaphorical sense. So I do think that at least for people who were not sure that the impeachment process was going to be fair or that there was going to be something from it, they can be convinced that there was some meat on the bone. There was some actual fire where the smoke was. So that's one thing. But most of the polling shows people are really not movable on the impeachment question. So I don't know if you're talking about a large number, but it's certainly the case that some people saw the process as being open, at least reasonably fair. And politically, the people are pretty hardened. I don't, though, to answer your question more definitively, think that there are any swing voters in the House who are thinking, you know what, maybe now that I've seen all this, I actually will vote with the Democrats to impeach. And I certainly don't think you saw enough evidence that you would see a member of the Senate potentially shift, especially Republicans who are in some tough fights. They do not want to be on the wrong side of the president. And so they may be vulnerable politically, but they don't want to have to challenge a president in this impeachment moment. Right. I mean, and, and here, I mean, these hearings are target at the U.S. Senate, right? Uh, they're not necessarily, as Brandon says, target at public opinion in general, or maybe indirectly or directly. But the question here is how many votes they can swing when articles of impeachment are redacted, if they are written and then sent to the U.S. Senate? Because the key question here is how many of these uh, Republican senators are going to be convinced and say, oh God, yeah, we really have an issue yeah. here. And then we're going to move forward and vote positively in terms of, 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 of the impeachment articles. Maybe five senators are like on the fence, you know, privately, publicly, they're still all kind of backing the mm -hmm. president. But so, you need 16, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And even if you had five flip, you're still not going to get the numbers you need. So right. it's really pretty uh, set in stone, more or less baked into the cake already. I'm thinking about Thanksgiving, so I'm still, still, I'm still <laughs> As anxious we for more pies. As we record this, we're <laughs> still hungry. Let's bring the story closer to home. Yeah. We have a mayoral runoff going on where we have got two very opposite sides of the fence. What are we going to see happen in that race as we get closer to the end? We're going to see more nastiness for sure. Um, it's been very personal in a way that's not comfortable, I think, for a lot of people. But I also do think you're going to talk about more issues. Uh, Tony Busby is identified some things he'd like to spend money on. But 
the city's budget's pretty tight. There's not a lot of money to spend and everything is pretty well kind of compartmentalized unless they choose to change the revenue cap structure, which would take a lot more and can't be done in the meantime. It's unclear that there's going to be more money for it. He says zero-based budgeting is the way to go. I think more scrutiny of that question is going to come up. The mayor says that you know he's got big plans for the second term. How much is that going to cost? And is it the kind of thing that resonates with people? So I do think we'll get into some issues, but it's definitely going to be kind of in a cloud of a lot of sort of yeah. accusations and anger. Geronimo, is our mayor a little Teflon-y? It seems like they keep throwing some good scandals his direction, and he seems to move through them, unless I'm just missing the other side of the story. But. Well, I mean, it's what happens in political campaigns, right? You're trying to find, you know, dirt. There's some consultants that are making a lot of money trying to find dirt and doing all these investigations. But we haven't seen the smoking gun, right? We haven't seen, you know, the text, or we haven't seen you know, the video or something like that, that really implicates, you know, one or the other sides into but, something very uh, dark. But like on national politics, at this point, does it matter or are the camps already there? And so you can show whatever you want, say, but these people that support the mayor are supporting the mayor, those right. that support Busby are supporting Busby, and they're not going to move. It's that Few in the middle right. that haven't decided that we're always fighting for. Well, few in the middle and those who voted for the other candidates during the 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 the, the primary, right? I mean, during the first stage or, or, or before the runoff election. So the question here is, are, you know, Bill King voters going to vote for Busby or going to vote for uh, Mayor Turner, or they're simply going to sit out uh, and, and see the election from afar? Runoff elections, very hard to get people to the polls. Why? Why do people, and I hate to put it this way, why do people care so little yeah. with something so important at stake? It's just out of the people people's routines, right? And it's not on cycle. So it's not like a big moment, like a presidential to draw a lot of attention and have different groups and parties funnel people. That's one thing. The fact that you don't have parties is another, right? That's a natural trigger for people. And that doesn't exist either, at least in a typical way. And it comes in a weird time of year, right? People are yeah. thinking about, you know, Thanksgiving is it just passed. You've got sort of Christmas coming up. You've got Hanukkah and all kinds of holidays. People are busy with end of semester, end of year parties. Says the professor. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I'm so busy. We're invited all over town. Yeah. But uh, so it's I just, meant end of semester grades. End of semester oh, and grading. Okay. Trust me, I know I you're not your invited to parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. We get one a year, but yeah. yeah. So it's hard to get people to pay attention when there's so many other things going on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, whoever wins these uh, runoff election is going to be the one that has the better turnout machinery and, and who can get more people out to vote. And, you know, you can pour a lot of money into getting people out to vote, but you really need people that are going to do the groundwork, that are going to be knocking at houses and getting people motivated and go and, and go to vote. So we'll see, you know, who has a better machinery, you know, throwing money does not necessarily mean that uh, one side or the other is going to get more people to go out and vote. I ran into Bill King at a luncheon not too long ago, and we were talking a little bit about this. And he was mentioning the part that we all miss when we're talking about the turnout is that in the districts, the wards that have contentious races going, that they're all uh, their city council members are in runoffs also, will have a bigger turnout because they've got something at stake, where in the other ones, those folks won't turn out as much. So you need to look at where the contested races are there and then know that you have to look at that area and see, are they going to vote more conservative or more liberal? Yeah. And that's how you can kind of gauge it out. Right. So even turnout isn't as important as where the turnout is happening. Yeah. Right. And that's so maybe 
for the mayoral candidates. It's better if there are runoffs in a lot of these seats because they bring more people out if they think that helps them. It's certainly better for Turner. I mean, you're talking about some fairly contentious runoffs in K and H, and you're also going to have one for that large seat Mm -hmm. um, against Mike Knox um, and Raj um, is running in in that seat. And so they're definitely like a lot of these local races are going to generate interest in a kind of more left-leaning politics and that's probably going to help the mayor not a lot uh, but because the numbers are going to be low so but little, yeah there aren't as many conservatives running in these districts like um, eric dick is running and uh, anthony josefino is running so th- those are going to generate a little bit of conservative interest which theoretically would matriculate to uh, to tony busby but uh, the numbers are going to be fairly small for them well uh, we could talk like this all day and we've talked pretty much a good chunk of it already right. i want to thank you guys for coming in and chatting with me Geronimo cortina and brandon roddinghouse the uh, hosts of party politics you can get it wherever podcasts are available and if you're not a podcaster you can just tune into news 887 every friday night at 10 o'clock and hear their wisdom for a whole half hour gentlemen thank, thank you. you very much <laughs> thank, thank you, you. Still to come on today's show, we'll press play with Temple Northrop, chat with Tony nominee Cheryl Lee Ralph, and enjoy the music of Matt Teal. As Next Question continues. I'm Ernie Manoose, and you're listening to Next Question. Now, most folks are familiar with Houston Public Media as a radio station, News 88.7, or as a TV station, TV8, or even a website, HoustonPublicMedia.org. But we are also the producers and presenters of a number of podcasts and digital media. One such podcast we present is Press Play, produced and hosted by Temple Northup, director of the Valenti School at the University of Houston. And here to tell us more is Temple Northup himself. Hello there. Hello. So Press Play, what was the idea behind it? So the idea really began with the idea of we've got a lot of students and a lot of different majors, and we would like the opportunity to have them hear from successful people in the media and communication industry, hear about what those people are doing, but then also really importantly, how did they get into those positions? How did they make it from a college student to successful business person or you know media personality or whatever the case may be? What got you interested in like this idea of telling stories for different organizations? So it actually started in high school. Okay. <laughs> so I was the student body president um, at my high school, John Marshall High School. And so very involved with the student body and doing a, a wide variety of activities. And I was always trying to get coverage for the organization. Yeah. And so we were, you know, always in the school newspaper. And I begged the yearbook uh, advisor, Mrs. Schweers at the time, to give me extra pages in the, in the yearbook. And she's like, well, if you can fill them, I'll give you the pages. And so eventually we got blacklisted from the paper because we were just covered too many times. <laughs> So I'm curious, the idea of communications, a lot of people, I think, think of it as, you know, being on television or radio and reporting thing, but really it's important in every aspect of how we work. Absolutely. One of the things we talk a lot about at the school is storytelling, Mm -hmm. as that is the fundamental skill of all of our majors. So whether you're in public relations, journalism, television, whatever the case is, you're telling stories. And that is true in in every industry. If you're an engineer and you've got this great idea, like you have to convey what what is your idea and why is it important to my life? You have to tell those idea stories. So it is really uh, important to anybody that the act of communication and doing it well. 
In today's day, uh, day and age of all this social media and everybody is basically broadcasting their whole lives anyway, do you find that we need these skills more or less today? In some ways, we need them more, more than ever, really, because I think the idea when we look at things like Twitter or TikTok or any of the other sort of important social media that's rising today is... You think, well, this is short. You know, Twitter is only was originally 140 characters or whatever. So there's not a story to be told. So, you know, I think there's less emphasis. But the reality is that people who are successful and good on any platform are those who understand how to tell a story. So if it's whether it's a story in 140 characters or getting your point across clearly, uh, I think that's important and getting more important because I think that differentiates people who just want to go online and try to build an audience for versus those who really understand how to communicate. Give me an idea. Who's one of your favorite guests you've had on Press Play and why? One of my favorite guests that we had was a guy named Headley Thomas, who's in Australia. So that was obviously not a face-to-face interview in that case, but he has a podcast called The Teacher's Pet, which was wildly successful. Uh, they had, whenever we spoke, I think 28 million downloads of the podcast. And so I reached out to him just because I loved the podcast and I was curious how he did it. And so most of my interviews are short. I try to do it 20 to 30 minutes to keep it in sort of in a, a time attention frame that might work for our students. <laughs> and we talked for an hour and a half or something like that um, because I was just so fascinated by the work that he had done. What's the podcast about? Yeah, it's about a woman who uh, was just 33 years old when she suddenly disappeared from the lives of her two young daughters. They were only age four and two um, when she disappeared from uh, the lives of her mother, who was very close to her, her her sister, her brothers, uh, all of her friends, her workplace, just vanished. And with no track record of ever... Um, doing anything like that she she literally disappeared into thin air what do you want your audience to take away from these podcasts when they listen to these episodes what do you want them to get from it one of the things i really want people to understand and and our primary audience is our students but it's really for anybody is that when you look at people in different industries who you see as successful i think what often is the case is people feel intimidated by them or don't think they could have that job. And what is common to all of these people is, you know, they were all college students at one point. And what it took was hard work, occasionally some luck along the way. But anybody can be these people. They're not you know, special per se, you know, they're all great. Uh, They're all talented, but there's nothing like magical about them. And so that's what I really like for our students to hear is, oh, you know, I really want to be the head of my own PR firm. And oh, look, we interviewed Phil Morbido, who started Pierpont here in Houston. And, you know, he started it by himself. It was him in just one room and now he's built it into something really large and so there are a lot of different people i talk to like that where it's just they had an idea and they were willing to bet on themselves and follow through with it okay here's a pretty broad question for you yeah why is storytelling important i think storytelling is one of those unique aspects of human existence right there nobody 
There are no birds telling each other really fascinating stories. So you, that we know of. That we know of. That we know <laughs> of so far. And so that that act of storytelling is one of those things that has gone back from the beginning of our ancestors is we were storytellers. That's what made us unique. And so I think when we look at storytelling, it is that emotional connection to stories, to people we don't know, things we don't have, and, and just being captivated by that idea. And so from a school of communication, if we're looking at advertising, we're trying to convince you that the new, you know, iPhone is the most magical thing that you could have. And we're captivating your experience. If you're a journalist, you're trying to explain, you're trying to tell these stories of people around the world and why you should care. And so I think that that we all just as humans have that need for emotional connection and stories are how we find it. What do you think is the biggest mistake people make when they try to convey information. There's a, a popular TED talk by Simon Sinek about it starts with why, uh, something something to that effect. And his whole position is you need to understand the why of what whatever you're doing. And the mistake people make is tend to focus on what. So if you're selling a a, a phone look, we've got all these new features rather than thinking about why do those features exist? Because that why is that emotional connection? Again, going back to storytelling. And so I think that's the mistake that people miss is that understanding like, why do we want that? Why why is this message important rather than just sort of the bells and whistles, which I think we often tend to focus on. It's kind of similar. And in my training and background, we always end up talking about all stories are personal stories. You don't tell subject stories, you tell people stories. And no matter what you want to tell, if you can tell it through the eyes of someone, it resonates better than if you can just talk about the features this phone has. But I want to know, Carolyn is using this right, phone. Yeah. <laughs> and how it's changed her life by using these features. Exactly. Suddenly my story pulls you in more. Things you see that people do that's really smart these days in the way they convey information. And I keep saying information because I don't want to limit right. how we see it. But when people are are using the realm of social media, for example, what are things that they do that is very effective in getting a message across? When you understand your audience and exactly who you're targeting, I think there are companies who you can see are marketing in really smart ways so that it's not, you know, if you're an iPhone, um, you're not marketing towards you know, my grandparents, they're not, they're not in the market for the iPhone. Know your audience. Yeah. And so really understanding your audience can help you target whatever your message is in creative ways. So if you're targeting, you know, millennials, you might have a different message than boomers. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's one of the things that when you see companies understand who their audience is, then they can market themselves really well. Um, I've been interested uh, in terms of things that have happened this past week. Uh, we've seen the launch of or a week and a half ago now, Disney Plus. So mm -hmm. that, you know, for me uh, in the communication field, uh, it's a big shift what's going on and how we get content. Uh, and so I thought that was marketed really well. So I've got a daughter who's eight. I have a lot of parents, <laughs> friends who are similar age kids, and they've they know who they're targeting. They know 
I've got a daughter and she's going to want to watch Disney films and it's cheaper just to go in and accept that I need Disney plus yeah. <laughs> and to rent them. <laughs> well, we talk oftentimes and in, in the field that I'm in, we refer to it as broadcasting, but the world has changed and that word means something different now. We are narrow casting, especially with all of these services that are out there. Yes, they want to broadcast Netflix to as many homes as possible, but within it, they are specifically narrow casting to their audience and they build up those cues and they watch what you watch to recommend more of what you'll watch so that they can really target pinpoint exactly what you need. Another example of that is if you shop on Amazon. Soon you will be seeing every imaginable thing that would excite you because they know who you are and they target to you. Yeah. And that's, you know, exactly knowing who your audience is. They... It's scary, uh, of course, how much information Amazon and Facebook and all those companies have about you. But when it's done well, it blows my mind about how awesome it can be when because Facebook will target ad me and they'll do it really well. They know I went to the University of North Carolina. And so up will pop, you know, the North Carolina in Texas T-shirt. And I'm like. I kind of want that shirt. That actually seems really cool. And so it is amazing when it works. It's yeah. it's cool, if slightly scary, but mostly cool to me uh, when they get that targeting right. If this had aired before Thanksgiving in the realm of communicating with people, what are the tips for surviving family communication? <laughs> I think, you know, with and communication, which is so much as text now uh, over the phone for sure, is understanding, you know, generational differences in how you're using technology. And people who are younger, the amount of emojis they use, uh, you know, can be confusing, <laughs> I'll say, to like my grandparents. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a very uh, much more text based, uh, no sarcasm, nothing like that in those in those types of messages. Uh, and so I, and try I think to, we've all read those emails where we put our mood in the moment on what we're reading in the yes. words and you can get so upset with someone. And then you sit back after you're in a different place and you reread it without yes. the emotion. And you're like, yeah, maybe they were just telling me something and it wasn't that. Yeah. So Which is the beauty. Which is the beauty of emojis. I think they've developed. So, all right, well, now it's really clear because... My face is smiling. Yeah, the smile is up. There are rainbows. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That this is supposed to be a fun text and it's their sarcasm or it's not supposed to be mean. Yeah. So who are you looking forward to coming up on Press Play? Well, so one of the guests coming up is Jim Nance, who's one of our certainly highest profile alums from the School of Communication. He's coming up. I have somebody who does uh, a lot of data for the New York Times and is deep into their analytics and things like that. So he's uh, an exciting guest coming up. And then who knows in 2020 where, where I'll go. Well, what I do know is that you can always find Press Play wherever podcasts are available. But if that's a little vague for you, you can come on over to HoustonPublicMedia.org and you can find it listed under our shows. And a big thank you to Temple Northrop, director of the Valenti School over at the University of Houston. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. This week from the vaults with World AIDS Day recognized yearly on December 1st, we thought we'd take a look back at a 2011 interview I had with notable HIV AIDS activist Cheryl Lee Ralph. 
While Ralph is best known for either originating the role of Dina Jones on Broadway in the hit show Dreamgirls or as Dee Mitchell, Moesha's mom on the TV series Moesha, she has also spent a great deal of time helping raise money to battle HIV and AIDS. In 1990, she created the nonprofit The Diva Foundation as a way to honor the many friends she lost to HIV AIDS. We begin this part of the conversation talking about Dreamgirls. Set the record straight on the Supremes versus the Dreams. I can tell you, quite honestly, Tom Ian, who was the original visionary behind Dreamgirls, who does not get the credit that he deserves, it was all his idea, was very, very clear in saying to me, you cannot mimic or play Diana Ross because they will sue us. Hence, when the movie came out and they played and mimicked Diana Ross, Barry Gordy, let it be known, I will sue you. And, you know, there were all sorts of apologies that were made within the, you know, the rags throughout Hollywood saying, we are not trying to insinuate da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Because, like Tom Ian said in the beginning, let people think what they want to think, but we cannot get sued. <laughs> okay, Dreamgirls, phenomenal success. Oh. When it ends, yes. what went through your mind? It, I, it didn't end for me. I left the show. I left the show, and I remember standing there. It was like my 1,247th performance, <laughs> which is like eternity for a musical. And I remember standing there saying to the cast that this is my last performance. And I unceremoniously left and went to Los Angeles, and I auditioned for a role on a series called V. And V, well, well you know what it's about, because yeah, it's, it's been redone now, it's back. <laughs> and I played this gun-toting sergeant that was going to battle these aliens, you know, and I was a double-barreled diva. And I cut my hair off and dyed it red, and it was quite a departure from Dina Jones, you know, so... I did that, and that was it, and I ended up staying. Was it the reception you expected after the phenomenal success of A Dream Girls? You know, and could you have repeated the phenomenal success of A Dream Girls? You know something? I don't know. But for me, I entered into Hollywood at a time that they were confused. And over and over, I would hear, beautiful, talented, black girl, what do we do with her? What do we do with you? Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the casting agent that looked at me and said, everybody knows how talented you are, talented you are. You are beautiful. But what do we do with the black girl? And he said that to me. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And it was very, very, it was very difficult. It was hard. But when I look back and knowing that I couldn't take no for an answer, that I always had to recreate myself. Lena Horne. Lena Horne's one-woman show is running at the same time as ours. She has a different schedule. So Sunday after our show, we're able, able to catch an evening performance of hers. Afterwards, I go backstage to meet her. And she says, oh, Shirley Ralph, what does Hollywood do with the, the beautiful black girl? And I said, 
I don't know. And she said, and neither do they. And that's why she learns to recreate herself over and over again. I understood what that meant. So here it is that uh, Dreamgirls this year will celebrate 30 years, and I'm still here. I know it's hard to believe since I'm only 31. <laughs> now, I, there's, there's so much more career. I want to hit some, but there's yes. some other stuff I want to hit so quickly. Mm-hmm. The other stuff to take you away from the showbiz life, yes. which is such a big part of you, but there's another part that's very close to you, and it's yes. all the work you do with HIV and AIDS. Which has to do everything to do with my time, once again, on Broadway, that original company of dream girls. I always tell people it was the best and the worst of all times and the worst was that I stood witness to such an ugly time when men got sick and died they got sick and they died there was no dying process they got sick and they died and there was an awful silence that fell over a lot of their suffering as they died and I remember a time when people found it easy to turn their backs on their friends act like they hadn't known them, just erase them from their minds. And I always said, we can do better than this. And I'm going to do better for my friends. And it was very difficult because I'm here to tell you they shoot messengers. And I remember when I started, you know, speaking up and doing things, people would tell me to shut up. Don't talk about that. It's not your fight. Why do you care about those people? And I could never figure out who those people were because all I could see were my friends, you know, people you care about. And I personally remember when you would go to the hospital. Mm. I remember this. And you would go visit your friends. And I'm telling you, Some of them didn't get a hospital bed. Some of them got a gurney and they were pushed out in the hallway. Some of them had those signs on their bed and it said, do not touch. I remember this. So, mm. so now this year, dream girls turns 30 AIDS turns 30. I remember that June when we were working, And you got that flash with these five guys that had died in San Francisco and folks didn't know what and folks want to keep on, keep on dancing like something wasn't happening. Alarms went off in my head and immediately what I saw that first and second year wasn't just gay white men. I saw a whole lot of black men and I saw one or two women. So it was never about those people because I saw a whole lot of folks and I always felt that we could do better. Look, anytime somebody can help you with your wig, weave, weft and wardrobe problem, they deserve to be remembered. So (laughs) maybe I remember that. I remember Tom Iron and I remember Tom had such a great love for me and Tom gave me the gift of Dina and dream girls. You know, I remember so many artists that, you know, uh, we've just missed out on a whole generation of great talent. Michael Peters, oh, you know, people forget Michael Peters created all of that early choreography for Michael Jackson, Thriller and all Dream Girls. That was all Michael Peters. You know, Michael Bennett, I mean, my God, he was a difficult man, <laughs> but, you know, an incredible 
talent, so many of them that, that we just lost. And, you know, I said, what can I do to make people remember this time? So I created Diva. And I said, you know, but Diva's going to be in a good sense. We're going to be divinely inspired and very AIDS aware. You know, we're going to be divas. We're going to be divinely inspired, victoriously anointed singers. And we're going to raise awareness and fight the good fight against AIDS. And so I remember those women that came on board and, you know, that first year and said, I'm I'm going to help you with this because we had all lost somebody. We all understood what this fight was. And so... This year, we'll, it'll be our 21st year, and we will be, be the longest consecutive-running musical AIDS fundraiser in the country. We've never missed a year, and the women continue to come out every year to raise their voices in song and commitment. In against the HIV very and brief AIDS. amount of time we have left, does it yes. still shock you that you're still having to fight the fight against AIDS and HIV? God, yes. If someone had told me 21 years ago that we'd still be doing divas, I would have said, no, we'll have a cure, we'll have a vaccine. It'll be divas simply singing for Ebola. <laughs> you know, something else. It won't be for HIV, AIDS. But what I see going on within the black community, the Hispanic community, and I feel that there's another curve that's going to be met soon, and that's young people. And people have got to wake up to this disease because I, as a mother, I'm not burying my children. So I want people to pay attention to their children and what's going on. And that's why I continue to fight the good fight against AIDS. Cheryl Lee Ralph continues to entertain both on stage and television and continues to raise HIV AIDS awareness through her Divas Simply Singing event, the longest consecutive running musical AIDS benefit in the United States. You can see the complete Cheryl Lee Ralph interview on our website, houstonpublicmedia.org slash next dash question. Still to come on next question, the music of Matteo and a look at films that we're thankful for. As every week, we bring Dustin Chase in to talk about what's going on at the films and the cinema. This week, we wanted to shift it a little bit. Two things. we got to talk about a new release over on Netflix, and we need to talk about being Thanksgiving weekend. Movies we're thankful for. So we welcome in from the Broadcasting Film Critics Association, it is Dustin Chase. Hello there, Dustin. Hello. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. We've been hinting, talking, going over this movie a little bit in the past Well, now... We've both seen it, and the audience has a chance to see it because it's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Yep. And Go. So, <laughs> well, I am not in the camp that loved the film. I don't hate the film. I gave it a C. Um, I, I said in my review, I, I fully believe that you can appreciate what Martin Scorsese has done in the world of cinema and not necessarily like all of his movies. And um, so it's a three and a half hour film. It's it's the one with Robert De Niro Roger, and Al Pacino Al Pac- and Joe Pesci. Yeah. Pacino's playing. Ray Romano. Ray Romano. Just to throw that in the mix. Yeah. And uh, Anna Paquin. Harvey Keitel. Anna Paquin, who people are very Harvey upset Keitel. that she has no speaking lines. Um, but she grimaces a lot. Yeah. Mm. But mm. I, I don't know. I um, 
it just didn't say anything to me. I didn't get anything out of it. And that's really where I'm looking for something special. When I review all these films, I want to take something with me that I didn't have in the beginning. And um, maybe it's my age. Maybe it's that I'm not a huge Scorsese fan and I don't give him an instant you know, good grade, but I just didn't find anything that I could leave with. It felt like three and a half hours of watching old men grow older. Well, three hours and 40 minutes, first of all, Uh, I would say my take on it is I'm very curious how it's going to play in people's homes. In the theater, it is a long film. It is a commitment of time. But when you're in the theater, you've already signed on. You're, for the most part, going to stay and watch something. In your home, there's a million distractions. You start watching it. Something happens. If you get an hour into it and pause it, will you come back to it? Is it compelling at each moment to keep you wanting to watch more? That's what I wondered about watching it. Watching it as a whole in the theater, it kept me going forward because I knew I was there for a good Mm -hmm. clip of time. Um, as far as saying anything to me, it reminds me a lot of my childhood, but that's because my dad was mixed up with the mob. So I see a lot of that (laughs) in the people I knew, the places they went, the way they interacted Mm -hmm. and all of that. So that was an interesting angle for me. I thought the, um, the design of the film was beautiful. Mm -hmm. I thought, but I didn't think visually the film was saying anything beyond following the action. Right. And the way they're talking about it, I wanted something more clever, you know? But did we need those scenes of just seeing De Niro reading the newspaper and then walking out the door and in scene? I mean, there's there's a couple of scenes where there's no advancement in the plot. It's just him sitting there, maybe meditating. Where and I don't have a problem with that in some movies. I felt this one, you could have gotten the same impact maybe with a few things tightened up. Yeah, so I, I, so I agree yeah. with you there. But I will have to say my biggest surprise in the film, and I've heard Al Pacino steals the film and Al Pacino steals the film. I think Joe Pesci stole the you film. Th- well, and that's the thing. Like I was at the LA premiere, as you know, Netflix flew us out there. And, and I was talking to people at the after party and it seemed to be two camps. Everybody pretty much agreed that De Niro was just okay. You know, that he's, he's certainly been better. He's very functional and very good and does exactly what he needs to exactly. do. Exactly. But it's Pacino and Pesci that really get the meaty kind of parts. Uh-huh. And so you seem to either find people that are in the Pesci camp or the Pacino camp. Which brings an interesting question. Do they both get nominated for supporting actor? Do they cancel each other out because half the people are voting for Pesci and half the people are voting for Pacino and neither get nominated? Or is there enough support one way or the other on Pacino or Pesci? So that's going to be an interesting thing to follow. I just think that Pesci for most of his career has played the sidekick and kind of very stereotypic sidekick. Mm -hmm. And here they gave him something with a lot of meat. And I thought it was so nice to see all of that come out of him. And it surprised me. Well, and and he's, He's normally playing a character that's a little bit louder, talkative, and he's more reserved and quiet mm-hmm. in this film. But I, for me, if I had to pick a p- favorite performance, it would be Pacino. But he, you know, he is certainly chewing the scenery in every scene. I mean, oh, I don't think so. You don't think I, so? I, I, in a, I, know, I mean that in a are, good way. I mean, he gets to yell and he's scream. Much more Pacino. Yeah. And this one, I thought he. A lot of it tempered it. There were those moments. And he's playing Jimmy Hoffa. We need to mention that. Right. He's playing Jimmy Hoffa. Yes, this is the Jimmy yeah. Hoffa. What happened to Jimmy yeah. Hoffa? The Irishman is uh, You Paint Houses, the guy mm-hmm. who wrote that book about what his thoughts on what mm-hmm. happened to uh, 
to Jimmy Hoffa where right. that's how I'm going to say it without giving it away. It's going to be an interesting film. See if people watch it over the holiday weekend. <laughs> yeah. Back to your question. I do think, I think the film might be more enjoyable on Netflix because it, it it's a long sit to sit in a theater. And, and this is not going to, the, we need to also mention that the Irishman is not going to be playing in your Regals and your AMCs because those cinemas ban Netflix films. They won't play them. So you're going to see Irishman if you see it in theaters in a small cramped, but you are know, you going to see it once time. it's on Netflix? Is it still going to have a theatrical? Movie? I mean, they are. Hollywood is certainly pushing that this is a film that you need to see in the theater. That it's cinematic value. That it needs to be seen on a big screen. Okay. Before we run out of time, we're talking thankful films. Give yes. me some films you are thankful for this this well, season. I have to mention Contact, uh, the 1997 film by Robert Zemeckis, starring Jodie Foster, and Matthew McConaughey, written by Carl Sagan. That was the film that made me want to be a film critic. It it was the first film that challenged me like I need to talk to someone about this film and in my family there was no one to talk to about these types of abstract questions so I started writing my thoughts down and so um I'm thankful for that because I wouldn't be here talking to you today if it wasn't and for how you get contact. to come to us exactly to all of our audience about it. another film that um, touched you I was gonna say one true thing that one is 1998 Meryl Streep Renee Zellweger who's in the Oscar race this year for Judy um that film has uh it, it spans uh, an entire year of uh, a mother dying with cancer and how um the daughter who was never really close to her mother through this illness, realizes that it's her mother that she takes after more than her father that she's respected all these years. And there's a wonderful Thanksgiving scene there. And so that popped into my head. Um, and then lastly, uh, my favorite film this year, at least as of now. So the one um, you're most thankful for most this year. thankful for this year would be uh, Richard Linklater's uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, starring Kate Blanchett, a film that didn't really hit with audiences for whatever reason, even though it's based on the best-selling book by Maria Simple. Um, I just loved that film. I saw a lot of myself in Kate Blanchett's wild Bernadette character. Um, and Ooh, I just think reason that, alone to watch Yeah, this exactly. <laughs> I think that's one that people missed, and they should check out now that it's on Blu-ray and DVD. Well, thank you, Dustin Chase, with us every week telling us about the movies in our local cinema and maybe even on TV or our streaming services. But also, they can read more about what you have to say where. Yes, you can find my reviews at texasartfilm.net, and you can also send me a message on Twitter, Texas Art Film. Thank you very much, Dustin. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Next Question. But, you know, it's the end of the show. That means music for all of you. And the only person who can bring us that as well as he can is Troy Schultz. He's the producer of our series Skyline Sessions right here at News 88.7 in Houston Public Media. Hey, Troy. Hey, Ernie. So what have you got for us this week? So today we have a band called Matil. They're from Atlanta. And it's after actually named after the uh, lead singer of the band. Her name's Matil Brown. And they're kind of a hard band to sort of pin down genre-wise, although I definitely put them in the rock category. But um, they make some very eclectic music. And uh, this is a great song off their most recent album called Satisfactory. And the song is Keep the Change. Yes. And kind is of, it like money back from a dollar? <laughs> well, it's sort of like the idea that you've given your your best effort and you receive kind of uh, little in return, which is, I think, something that most of us feel at some point in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of like saying, you know, I, I gave all that effort. Well, you know what? You can keep the change. 
Ah, so yeah, a little, little edge to this one. Yeah. Well, as we uh, continue to celebrate this holiday weekend, I've, I've pushed Thanksgiving all the way to a weekend now, or your Black Friday weekend, or whatever you want to call it, you can all keep the change as we <laughs> head out for this week. We'll play that song in just one second. But before we go, a big thanks to our associate producer, Damon Odgers, and our engineer, Tom Carter, who puts this show together every week. I'm Ernie Manus, your host and producer. Until next time, remember, if you want to reach out to us, you can email us nextquestion at houstonpublicmedia.org or uh, visit with us in the realm of social media at nextqhou. But right now we leave you with Mateel and Keep the Change. You can just keep the change